Rise and shine history buffs. This is the Monday Morning General Podcast, where we give you the play-by-play analysis on battles from antiquity to the 20th century. I'm Brendan, that's Bjorn, and joining us today is our good buddy Steve. Steve, what's happening, man? There we go. We got the salute. Good to see you. Okay, at the end of our last episode, Bjorn, you said you wanted to talk about the Spanish Armada. So before we get into all of it, why did you pick this battle? Oh, yeah. All right. So a couple different reasons. First main reason is we needed something that was kind of in the middle of the the timeline, right? We'd done ancient history. We'd yeah. done more modern with World War II. We'd done World War One. We've done the Civil War. Moving back, uh, we've done the uh, the fall of Constantinople. We needed something that was in the 1500s. And what more significant and influential to history than the Spanish Armada in 1588 because if, if we're going to think about a different scenario if this had gone differently our world today could and probably would look incredibly Wait. different that's a marker for me the listeners would know that the mark for me is a significant battle is one in which major change would have occurred if something had happened mm-hmm. differently so i just thought there is no better change timeline t in the road than the battle, the Spanish Armada in 1588. All right, the Spanish Armada or the Invincible Armada was a massive fleet sent by King Philip II of Spain to invade England in 1588. Comprised of roughly 130 ships and 30,000 men, it was one of the largest naval forces of the 16th century. All right, actually, Brendan, I'm gonna stop you there because I really like the Spanish name for their armada. It's the Grande y Felicima Armada, which is the great and most fortunate armada. So whenever you name something- Did they name this before the sinking of the armada? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. so like you name something invincible, you name something fortunate, man, you're just asking for trouble. You're asking for it. (laughs) The armada aimed to overthrow Protestant Queen Elizabeth I and restore Catholicism in England in response to English support for the Dutch revolt against Spain and English raids on Spanish colonies and vessels. However, the English Navy using innovative tactics and superior artillery, along with unfavorable weather for the Spanish, resulted in the Armada's defeat. This marked a significant shift in naval warfare and a decline in Spain's power, paving the way for England's rise. The defeat bolstered the Protestant cause and influenced Europe's religious landscape, underscoring that smaller, agile force can overcome seemingly invincible opponents. Okay, Brandon, so I wanna I wanna first go back a couple decades here before we start getting we're not gonna go crazy we're just gonna go back a couple decades yeah Yeah. just a couple decades all right so what i found really interesting is that spain and england had been allies for many decades prior to this so france was this dominant force in europe and as such an alliance was cultivated between both england and spain all right these two nations for example they went to war against france three times during king henry the reign now he reigned for a long time mm-hmm. but going to war three times against france is a lot and you got to be pretty decent friends to go in every single time with your ally but here's the problem though spain's catholic and england is going to become an anglicanized christian church with king henry the divorce of his first wife then beheading of his second wife all that kind of stuff they're going to become pretty anglicanized after he creates that new sect or new denomination within the Christian church. So after he dies, his son Edward VI dies with no heirs. Then his Catholic daughter Mary ends up marrying the King of Spain, King Philip II, and then they attempt to bring England back to Catholicism. She's going to get this nickname Bloody Mary because she's going to burn a lot of people at the stake. It's going to be a mess. 
Is that uh, where the delicious drink gonna, comes from? I don't know if that's where the drink comes it from. Must. It must. It has to. We'll <laughs> give it to her. We'll give it to her. We'll give steak it to her. Steak of celery but, symbolizes the steak. Oh. For real? Are you making this up? I mean, the steak was full of fiber and good for you. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. All right. Got everything going. All right. So he's going to persuade Mary to join him in another war against France where the English are going to, it's going to be devastating for the English. They're going to lose their last port on mainland Europe. It was the city of Calais. The French are going to capture it. A huge blow to the English, both monetarily, because they're going to lose their last mainland port. But then also in, in prestige, Mary is quoted as saying, when I'm dead and opened, you shall find Calais lying in my heart. Mm. This is the end here of this relationship between the, the Spanish and the English fighting against mm-hmm. the French. They're going to suffer this major defeat. Mary is going to die. And then, and then Elizabeth I is going to become the Queen of England. Right. And this relationship between Philip II of Spain and the new Queen of England is really going to sour. Yeah. Queen Elizabeth I cultivated a cult of personality in England, portraying herself as the virgin queen wedded to her kingdom and people. She pursued a middle road in religion and promoted reconciliation after the bloody conflicts of her siblings' reign. Elizabeth was frugal with finances, and her modest court contrasted with the grandeur of other European rulers. She relied heavily on trusted advisors like William Cecil and Francis Walshingham to provide prudent counsel on both domestic and foreign affairs. So let's talk about King Philip II. So he was a reclusive, austere figure, rarely seen even at his own court in Madrid. Much of his reign was spent at the monastery palace of El Escorial outside the capital, which Philip had built as a monument to royal and religious authority. He neglected states of affair to focus on religion and micromanaging his far-flung empire through all of his paperwork. And then think about it, like his far-flung empire. Try and manage an entire empire that goes all the way you're in africa you're in south america you're in central america you're everywhere asia the sun doesn't set on your empire and the fastest thing is either a ship or a horse a ship or a horse that's right elizabeth inspired loyalty through charisma and rhetoric philip demanded obedience from his subjects philip vigorously expanded the powers of the inquisition to root out heresy and heavily taxed castile to fund his ambitions his orthodox Catholicism led Philip to burn Protestant books and ban foreign ideas. Elizabeth maintained relative religious tolerance and encouraged new learning and literature. She did suppress Catholics in England, though. It wasn't super tolerant, but it was more tolerant than Philip. Culturally, it was tolerant to Protestants. Yeah. <laughs> more so than her uh, sister. Half-sister. Yeah, very true. Yeah. Much more. Elizabethan England saw flowering creativity, which had no parallel in the more conservative Spain ruled by Philip. Spain sounds like not a great time in the 1500s under Philip. Sounds kind of dour. Uh, Their differing outlooks were reflected in how they waged war. Elizabeth avoided conflict when possible and relied on innovative asymmetric means like privateers. The bureaucratic Philip readily used overwhelming force and lived through crusades against Protestant enemies. These contrasts fed the rising rivalry between England and Spain. Elizabeth was the daughter of King Henry VIII, like Bjorn mentioned, and his second wife, Anne Boleyn. Henry had separated the Church of England from Rome in order to divorce his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, mother of Mary, Bloody Mary Tudor, future Catholic Queen of England, succeeded by Protestant Elizabeth I, and the wife of King Philip II, to marry his wife, Anne Boleyn. Uh, Elizabeth thus represented the new Protestant direction in England that Philip saw as a threat to Catholic Europe. So I think I would like to jump into talking about that tension between England and Spain, specifically around the political things that were happening and then all this religious stuff that we just mentioned. 
All right, let's talk about that tension. So escalating tension between the Protestant English and the Catholic Spanish during Elizabeth's reign, right? So we already talked about it. Initially, Philip's going to seek Elizabeth's hand in marriage, right? Remember, she's this virgin queen. And he's going to think about, oh, we should unite, right? Mary, your sister and I were married. It was a great alliance. Now, how about we get married? Proposing marriage several times to unite their powers under Catholic rule. But Elizabeth Elizabeth, wasn't really into that. Yeah, Elizabeth, no. We're Protestants no. here. By uh, so grace, gonna... not by works, right? That's all Elizabeth wanted. <laughs> there you go. Nice shout out there, yeah. Brendan. All right, so Elizabeth consistently refused his offers, wary of compromising England's independence uh, or her own authority. So now, like, consistently throughout the entirety of her reign, she will not get married because she does not want to compromise her own authority, right? Mm-hmm. Because if she gets married, then she's the queen. Right now, she's the ruler. She's in charge. She is Queen Elizabeth I, but a queen has a king if the queen gets married. And then there's a question of who's in charge. Basically, that's just Spain conquering England through marriage because then the Spanish son would own England and Spain. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so she's going to refrain from doing that her entire time. There are questions as to if she actually had relationships with people, with men, but that's a different story entirely and probably not the purview. Known children, at least. She had no children. So conflicts in the Spanish-controlled Netherlands. So remember, at this point in time, the Netherlands, the Habsburg Empire is huge. It goes everywhere. Philip's actually a son of the Habsburg Empire, or a nephew or cousin or something. Yeah, this thing's huge. The Spanish-controlled Netherlands triggers decades of rising tension between England and Spain. Protestant rebels in the northern provinces revolt against the Spanish Catholic rule. We have the Protestant Reformation going on at this point. Elizabeth is going to eventually send English troops to fund and aid them. How would you feel if you were the king of Spain and all of a sudden your English rival starts sending troops into your territory in order to protect the people who you're trying to suppress, right? So this is going to outrage Philip. He's going to see it as English meddling in the Netherlands in his territory and the support for the heresy that he is attempting to wipe out. And Did this guess, whole thing happen because Philip was mad you to get married to him? Yeah, how, would, how the world would have changed if they would have been married. Yeah, so after that, Philip devoted himself to deposing Elizabeth and restoring Catholicism in England by placing Mary, Queen of Scots, on the throne. Mary had a strong claim as heir and was a devout Catholic. Elizabeth reluctantly imprisoned her cousin Mary for 20 years to prevent her from being a focal point for the Catholics. So, all right, I'm not going to not gonna kill my cousin, but I'm just going to put her over here in this little castle and not talk to her for like two decades. Even though we do think that there are a couple opportunities where King Philip II may have actually attempted to do something with Mary. Hey, here's something, here's a plot, here's some funding. It happened all the time. There's plots all around Mary, and this did not make Elizabeth very happy. But Elizabeth still keeps her for 20 years. Right, because she can't make a decision is the thing here, too. So in France, Philip funds Catholic forces against the Protestant Huguenots in the ongoing French War of Religion. Massacres of Huguenots led hundreds of thousands to flee to Elizabeth's England, spreading anti-Spanish sediment. When the Protestant Henry of Navarre became heir to the French throne, Philip aimed to stop him and keep France Catholic. This drove Philip towards plans to control England and lock down Protestant resistance across Europe. Pope Sixtus V supported Philip's invasion plans with a papal bull that offered religious blessings, legitimacy, and huge sums of financing collected from the Spanish church. Later, popes like Urban VIII continued advocating for the overthrow of Elizabeth as part of counter-reformation efforts against Protestantism. 
religious pressures surrounding Mary, Queen of Scots, alluding back to a lot of these plots that were around Mary and Elizabeth, these pressures erupted when proof of her conspiracy emerged. Elizabeth reluctantly ordered her cousin beheaded in 1587, outraging Philip and Catholics across Europe. But it eliminated a potentially disastrous union for Spain between France and England and sets the armada in motion. It's like one of the like one of the nails in the cross here for the armada to, to sail. It's not the only one, but it's a really important step on the road to war for the armada. Another important thing that I want to talk about here is some of the, the economic things that England was doing to Spain at the time. Steve, like you had alluded to, Spain had annexed Portugal in 1580 and took control over the strategically vital shipping lanes of the Indian and South Pacific Oceans. Portugal had trading posts in Asia and Africa, and those became bases for Spain to project their power across all three continents. So this allowed Spain to dominate the maritime trade in lucrative goods like silk, spices, tea, ivory, and more. Before the annexation, there were Spanish shipping lanes and Portuguese shipping lanes that kind of sailed throughout the Atlantic. When the, I can't remember which Pope did it, but one of the Popes were like, hey, here's the line. Anything west of this line is Spanish. So Spain got all of South America, Central America, Mexico, Portugal took, Brazil, once they discovered Brazil, but they also got things east of it, which included the ocean to Africa. And Portugal had all these fantastic shipping lanes that went around, what is it, the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa and into India to get all those spices and in East Asia, right? Once Spain annexed Portugal, they got all those shipping lanes. And so they were the ones that were able to control all that trade. Like I said earlier, Spain also ruled much of Central and South America following Pizarro's conquest of the Incan Empire which allowed vast flows of silver to travel from the mines at Potosi in Mexico back to Spain. Much of this wealth went to fund Spain war efforts against Protestant powers. England aimed to break this economic engine fueling Spain's dominance by raiding its treasure fleets. So this is like kind of where Elizabeth's like, we need to do something about this, but I don't want to engage my Navy to go and do this. So she's going to give these letters of mark to all of these English privateers and basically, hey, if you were hurt by Spanish shipping, you can go and reclaim your goods. And the English took great advantage of this and basically just attacked and raided the, Span the Spanish at all times. It's important to remember that these privateers like Drake and Raleigh, they're given this letter of mark, but they're basically pirates. They're, they're pirates who have been hired by England. England was a big fan of this form of naval warfare. Mm -hmm. It's here. I'll give you this letter. You can fight for me. You can keep a part of the treasure that you loot in order to enrich yourself while providing some back to your sponsor. And in the end, no real English ships, no real English sailors are being threatened right. through this. But the benefits of sinking and capturing Spanish treasure galleons is still recognized and realized. For example, if you backed one of Drake's expeditions, you could expect about a 47x return on your investment. So if you gave him one pound, he would give you, he would bring back 47 pounds. So maybe not you, maybe you wouldn't yeah. get all of that, but you're going to get a substantial return on your investment by, mm -hmm. by investing in Drake. Yeah. Yeah. And some and of the, the queen business, not just for the privateers, but for merchantmen and the, and maybe right. they don't want to take the risk, but they'll finance the expedition. And yeah, like Bjorn said, it was lucrative for the crown too, because Elizabeth would back them. She'd give them a couple of her galleons and then some money to go and fund these these adventures, basically. And Drake and all these other guys would come back with chests full of gold and silver for Elizabeth to put into her treasury. It's also important to recognize that 
It's not just the gold and silver that the Spanish are carrying across the Atlantic from South America back to Spain, but these trade these trade lines, these trade routes, they're highly lucrative in themselves. Mm-hmm. At this point in time, you're seeing a resurgence in global trade. Things are moving. People are moving and goods are moving and money is changing hands. And at in certain instances, if you were to take your ship across the ocean to to India and you were to purchase an entire shipment full of spices and bring that back to Europe, you'd be able to retire essentially off of the funds that you received from that one ship. So there's money to be had. This is a very lucrative business just trading across the sea. Just to wrap up this first part, providing some context to the Armada, major reasons why the Armada happened or like this battle of grave lines and all this happened between England and Spain. Religious differences, uh, tension, right? Protestants versus Catholics. Political things, Spain working in the Netherlands, England working against that. And then all this whole deal with Mary, Queen of Scots. And then it seems like one of the big reasons here is the sea lanes, right? Philip needs these treasure fleets to sail and he needs his mines to be productive. He needs these trade lines to be productive. And all these English raids and this privateering is putting a big dent in his coffers. Right. It's important to note that when you're talking about raiding treasure fleets, you're not just hijacking ships on the open ocean. You're raiding towns, you're raiding settlements, your ports. You're not just raiding in the yeah. Caribbean, you're raiding elsewhere in Europe, you're raiding on Spain proper for the coastal cities yeah. and ports there. So it's a very real issue that's very close to home, not just financially, but it's terrorizing the Spanish coastal communities as well. Let's move into talking about the Armada. I want to talk about the Spanish fleet first. So talk about some of the design and the equipment of the fleet. And Steve, please stop me if you have any details on any of these ships or anything. But so the Armada is comprised of 130 ships with nearly 2,500 guns and over 7,000 sailors and oarsmen. The fleet included 56 Spanish and Portuguese galleons forming its main warships. So these were supported by 22 lighter armed Patashas, Zabras, and Pinnaces. <laughs> Pinnaces. <laughs> How are you say that? And they're ideally suited for scouting and communication roles. So the galleons, right? So these are what provides the Armada's brute strength. The four largest were Venetian-built sailing galleasses, displacing around 2,500 tons each. They were innovation hybrids propelled by both sail and banks of oars, carrying 50 to 60 heavy guns apiece that could devastate enemies at point-blank range. Point-blank range is like the thing we have to remember here. The Spanish have a terrible time supplying their fleet, especially with, with cannon. And they're like poor castings uh, in, in Spain. And it's just like, they basically scoured Europe to find uh, cannons to put on these ships. So they didn't have any long range guns for the most part. Most of them were these short and close, but if they got in close, they were gonna do some damage. Over two dozen Spanish and Portuguese nows formed the backbone of the fighting fleet. These weighed 400 to 1,000 tons individually and carried 24 to 40 cannons firing 6 to 60 pound shot. Four mammoth Portuguese carracks over 1,000 tons rounded out the fire bearing 48 to 55 guns. It's important to understand when you're talking about these ships, these are big ships. These galleons are monstrous. And on top of being monstrous, they're incredibly expensive. They're very valuable, but the biggest problem is they're made of wood, so they don't last very long. These naval vessels are huge dredges on a on an economy, on a military or on a government because you're constantly attempting to maintain these things at the same time. Just building one 
is massively expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right, Bear. I think what I'd read was like one of these galleons, the bigger ones, would basically be like us building an aircraft carrier today, which is so expensive. <laughs> What is it? What does the states have? Eleven, right? We have. I think we have eleven aircraft carriers. Constitutionally uh, like, mandated eleven. We don't have eleven. Uh, expenditure for ten. Hmm. You would know. We oh, 10. we need to buy We're one. On it. But. Steve, or Steve, do you have anything else on the Spanish fleet? Yeah, a couple points of correction: the the Venetian <laughs> galleasses are only six hundred tons apiece. In a total display, point four hundred tons. What does that even mean? What does that even mean? Oh, yeah, four hundred ton ship versus twenty. Like, what is, what is it? That sounds like a twenty five hundred ton displacement to me. No, four ships at six hundred tons each is twenty four hundred total. But oh, I each see. ship is only six hundred tons. Oh, and so displacement. Oh, I did bad math. It refers to the mass of water that is displaced by the hull. So basically, it's the weight of the ship. And so this is how we can compare ships of similar size based on how much water they displaced. And so, Steve, we, is it more important to have more ships or more displacement? It, it really depends what you're trying to do. If you have mm-hmm. lots of itty bitty ships, lots of ton ships versus one 500 ton ship, you can put up a heck of a lot more cannons, bigger cannons, heavier cannons, yeah. more armor on that heavier ship, and you can sit around and the little guys out of the water all day. But mm-hmm. you're going to lose things in terms of maneuverability. You might gain things in terms of stability. You might, you're, you're going to have a, a deeper draft as a heavier shift. So you're not going to be able to run in some of the shallower waters. This is why we see all the different watercraft we see today. We see John boats in swamps, shallow draft. They can go over the muddy, swampy areas. You're never going to take that in the ocean. So it's going to flip right away. So we see in Armada, you have all these different ships. But to Bjorn's point, yeah, these things are crazily expensive. A capital warship, ship of the line, a modern day like aircraft carrier of thing on the order of one to two percent of a GDP. So these things are crazy expensive. But in terms of size, compared to modern ships, these aren't that big. A modern day Harley Burke class destroyer is about 10,000 tons displacing. A Titanic displaced about 50,000 tons. And so these are big ships for the era, strong ships, but they're not huge. The really interesting thing about the Spanish Armada is that the do incorporate craft from all over the place. You mentioned the galleasses, which are oared ships that also have sails. They're like a galleon with oars, but they also have galleys. And we're at a point in history where sails are becoming dominant. But when you are looking at navies that were based, say, in the Mediterranean or the Baltic Sea, they still, at this time point, are using oared galleys like they were using back in ancient Rome or ancient Greece because those are the most effective ships for those waters. But when you get into the open ocean, you mm-hmm. need more stability. The sails are have help, more helpful. We know the Vikings existed and they were traveling across the ocean maybe 500 years before this, right? So it was an evolution and innovation by necessity. But we're at a really interesting point in history right before sails become completely dominant on the open seas and we enter into what we call the age of sail. And so we see that also in the, the battle tactics that are used by the Spanish in these in the fights and uh, by the English as well. I th- that's maybe all I have on the ships. You mentioned the guns. The, the interesting thing, and this becomes important when we talk about tactics, with the kind of the galleys and the oared ships, the guns were placed in the bow of the ship. The galleys still have rams at this point in time. Gallia says they have guns in the bow. They might have them on the side as well, I think. 
but the idea was that the ship is strongest. You point it at your enemy, and then you can ram it or you can shoot it. And you can use the Orson mm. Macal. The challenge, and we see this with the Armada, the galley ships, the true galley ships, don't do well in the open ocean. They're too long, too narrow. And when you have lots of waves and you have this the ship is long and narrow, the wave rising up and down causes the ship to bend and snap and creak, and it, it wears on the ship. The tactics in these ships are designed to point the bows at the enemy and not the sides of the ship. Whereas you Whoa, call okay. a, a ship of the line or a sailing ship or a, any ship with a lot of guns on it, they're all in the side ports, right? And you turn the ship sideways and you yeah. go... Yeah, because you want, you want a broadside, right? And put a ton of cannon at a guy. Yeah, they're, they're throwing broadside. These galleons don't do that? No, the, some of the, the galleons... Because there's oars there. The galleons can do that, but galleys, the galleasses, are, are designed more for that bow force attack. Mm. And the ship tactics that are used by this are still based around this old school way of thinking around bow force. That's why you have this Lunula sort of formation, this crescent formation, which we can talk about later. Oh. Um, that allows the bows of the ship pointing towards the enemy and kind of a pincer movement to grab them. That's perfect. Let's talk about the English Navy and then Steve give us kind of the difference as soon as we get done with it. All right. So the English Navy assembled to oppose the Armada comprised of about 200 ships. These are going to be significantly smaller ships on in some cases. But at its core, there are 34 Royal Navy galleons, 12 heavily armored merchant vessels owned by nobles like Sir John Hawkins which that's super good of him to join the cause, you know what I mean? So the Navy's ships included faster purpose-built warships like the 500-ton Ark Royal had 38 guns, the 400-ton Revenge had 46 guns, and they maximized their firepower and maneuverability over transport capacity. So they're going to increase their ability to throw lead down range and their ability to move over their ability to transport stuff and people. Hawkins' 800-ton Elizabeth Jonas boasted 54 guns, so that is a very heavily armored merchant ship, which rivaled Spanish galleons. In total, the English had about 150 heavy cannons and then 300 smaller culverins and demi-culverins outranging uh, the Spanish guns. That's that's uh, a big point here. That's a huge difference between these fleets is the range that they can shoot at effectively. English can shoot a lot further. So nearly 80 lightly armored pinasses and row barges carried uh, advanced long-range culverins suited for harassing actions. The English focused on ranged firepower and speed in their ships rather than close quarters engagement. Drake's squadron specialized in hit-and-run raids, carrying up to 10 guns on 120-ton warships uh, like the Golden Hind, along with landing uh, craft, over 50 armed merchant vessels conscripted to the battle. The Armada formed the fleet's irregular rear guard. So you've got 50 guys who you said, hey, it's time for you to load up, mount up, let's go. You're coming with us. So in all, England mustered around 400 rapid-firing long guns of various calibers that could tear into lumbering Spanish ships from a large distance, plus nearly 200 close-range demi-cannon to sweep the enemy's decks. Their smaller ships required precision coordination, but allowed a much nimbler maneuver. We have to... From English perspective, first line of defense the English has against anybody is the Queen's Navy. And the second line of defense, the English is pretty much nothing. They, they have to have a Navy that works. They don't have a standing army. They don't have defense works. They can't really do much if, if Spain actually invades. And so the Queen's Navy is really well maintained. There's about 39 ships total. And then they, like you suggested, with all these merchant craft and other ships. We are at an interesting point in history 
again, where you start seeing the need for dedicated warships because you start loading these cannon on these ships and you can't take cargo. Cannon are so big, they're so heavy, take up so much space. Mm -hmm. You either have a merchant ship or you have a warship. And if you're going to be firing cannon at a ship and you're going to need extra armor, you're going to need imports, you need all these different things built into your ship. And at this point, I figured that out and they have a standing navy that's optimized for battle. We talked about... But it's only 34. So the English Navy, like the Royal Navy, is 34 ships or 39 ships or whatever. Like, it's a small number. Yeah. And then this, the Armada had 56 Spanish and Portuguese galleons. So the Spanish are a little under a half, double the size of the English fleet, just looking at the galleons. Sure. Now, so Steve, my big question is... What makes these English ships more maneuverable? Is it just the fact that they're smaller? They're not not smaller. Some of them are smaller. The manifold right here, the English had ships that were pushed a thousand tons. The, the Triumph, Bear, Arc Royale, Elizabeth Jonas, these are all ships. As Victory, these are all ships that are 800 to 1100 tons to split. These are big ships. These are going to be traditional ships. They're, going to, they're either going to be galleons that are going to be rebuilt or they're going to be older designs. When we start talking about the newer designs, the race-built English ships, those are the same for the same displacement of tonnage. They are going to be more maneuverable and they're going to carry more guns than their Spanish counterpart. And the way that the English do this is they, they along the hull farm. It's a little bit longer. And then they, they decrease the size of the fore castle or the aft castle. And so you have a ship, if you look this up, the ship uh, high on the aft, and then the front is bleaker. It's, it's lower. And so what this allows you to do is it allows you to put more guns on the ship for the same displacement. Also allows the ship to be a little bit more maneuverable, a little bit faster, because your drag... And so for the same displacement, if you can have less area in the water that's, that's blocking your flow, less drag, you're going to be more maneuverable. And those two things like you mentioned, and then coupling that with the uh, advancement and cannon gives them advantage. The other thing about the English Navy, all these ships are fairly modern. There were four ships that were built from the reign of Henry VIII. They had 11 built since 1854 and 12 that were rebuilt more modern standards. And they also had several warships that were designed for shallow water operations in Flanders. I don't know if that ever comes up, but they were prepared. They had to get into some of these shoaly waters that are going to become a really big issue for the Armada later on. The English could navigate those waters a little bit better with some of it. And the, like I mentioned the maintenance program. The Admiral of the fleet, Charles Howard, and his Navy... He was appointed High Admiral in December of 1587. He looked at it and he said, there is never one of these ships that knows what a leak means, which is mm. amazing for the day because these things just rot. Right? You run these things till they rot out and that is over and you rebuild them, right? So the, the, was, they, they were well prepared with their Navy for this naval contest. The design of these ships is crazy. <clears throat> I, I can do calculations on my computer right now that would have taken these guys two years to do in terms of calculating ship stability. And how to design these ships? Because you have to, to, to calculate the center of mass of every mm. single piece of material on the ship. 
And then once you figure it all out, you can do all these calculations to figure out how the ship's going to behave. And if it doesn't behave well, the math doesn't tell you how to improve it. So these people were building these ships because it was just faster to build them and drive them than it was to like map it out and design them properly. Um, nowadays, we have crazy advantages and they're part of the reason why we can build bigger ships because we can get these calcs way faster than they were. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. <clears throat> oh, man. All right. Spanish plans for the invasion of England. So the Armada aimed to escort an invasion force of over 30,000 men from the Spanish Netherlands across the channel to invade England. So the Armada was supposed to link up with Spanish forces in Flanders, commanded by the Duke of Parma. Parma's soldiers would load onto barges and follow the Armada across to land in English soil. Potential landing sites included the Isle of Wight and the southern ports of Portland and Portsmouth. With its massive sizes protection, the Armada would secure anchorages and provide covering fire for the troop barges to unload. Spanish pike regiments would quickly establish beachheads and advance inland. The invasion plans were meticulously drawn up with directives provided for securing key objectives. Vast stores of equipment and supplies were assembled in in the Netherlands to support the conquering army as it marched overland to take London. If the English fleet engaged the Armada directly, Admiral Medina Sidonia planned to mass his largest galleons into defensive squadrons that would trap the English within an overwhelming barrage of cannon fire. Meanwhile, troop transports would slip past to the landing zone. They were actually not trying to get decisively engaged with the English fleet. Philip didn't want to lose any ships, but they're basically the covering force for this landing invasion force to get to English soil. The English can't let this happen. No. Because the they, English don't have an army this From an analyst perspective, it kind of seems like if Parma could land, and Parma's like one of these top-tier generals. Like, we talked about Hannibal last episode. Like, Parma might be up there with some of the stuff I read about this dude. And if he gets to English soil with 30,000 men... It's a pretty good chance that he is getting to London and sacking the capital. Right. These are 30,000 professional yeah. soldiers. All right, Bjorn, you want to hit the uh, the English plans for defending? Yeah, so here, here's the English plans for defending the area against the Armada. So they lacked comparable naval numbers. Now, they do have a lot of ships, but they're not the same size. They're Depending on their merchant ships, we've already previously spoken about how they only have 37 of their own Royal Navy ships or the Queen's Navy. Um, So they lack a comparable number. England's aim is to offset Spain's superiority through agility and deception. So it's faster warships manned by veteran captains would evade large-scale battles and instead pick off isolated Spanish ships with long-range cannon fire. So stay away, shoot at them, and and pick them off one by one. So this stratagem was previewed in April of 1587 when Francis Drake launches a daring surprise attack against the massing Spanish fleet at anchor in Cadiz Harbor. Which is in southern Spain. So this is in a Spanish harbor. And and that's the thing. So Elizabeth I and her spies, they had recognized that the Spanish were planning this. They were doing this. All of Europe knew this was happening. Yeah, they're accumulating these forces. And so the first thing you should do is you should hit them. You should hit them hard. So Drake launches the attack. In two days of raiding, Drake captures or destroys nearly 40 Spanish ships without losing a single English ship. So yep. this is going to delay the Armada's launch significantly, but it doesn't prevent it. Yep. Now, now, Drake's raid demonstrates the effectiveness of England's nimble ships, shows Philip II that even Spain's own ports are vul- vulnerable to attack. It boosts English morale while forcing Philip to spend further time and resources rebuilding his damaged fleet and the force that's going to provide the invasion of England. 
So following this strategy, the English fortify potential landing sites. They know that the Isle of Wight is one of those issues along with the southern coast. They're going to provide gun batteries. They're going to improve them. They're going to muster their militias. Beacon networks are established to quickly spread word of the Spanish movements. Remember, there's no telephone. There's no telegraph. It's horses. It's lighting beacons. The fires of Gondor. There you go. It's ships as well. So (laughs) they've got these beacons ready to go to tell when the Spanish are on their way. Selectively engaging the lumbering armada, English ships would use hit-and-run tactics to lure the Spanish vessels into a chaotic chase where they might break formation or run aground. Very similar to you you lead them into an ambush kind of an idea. Mm -hmm. Someone strays, someone's too slow, someone's too fast. You turn and you attack those. Special fire ships are going to be used to panic. There you go. Wow, nice. Good example. (laughs) So special fire ships are going to be used to panic the Spanish fleet at anchor. As Drake had done at Cadiz, this is not going to be as successful the second time. But if forced to battle, the English aim to employ their long-range fire to disorder the armada formation before withdrawing. They know they can't handle it in a ship-to-ship, so they say, they figure that a direct ship-to-ship engagement would only occur when isolated from the main Spanish fleet. At all costs, get out of there if you can, and only engage if they're isolating a portion of the Spanish mm-hmm. fleet. Above all, the English sought to conserve forces while whittling away at their enemy until weather or attrition might finish them off. I have some points. On the Spanish side, this is interesting. I read that Philip actually, quote, fears war, the burned child fears fire due to the high costs associated with the war because mm-hmm. the Spanish crown did have large debts, right? They had a lot of cash flow, but they had debts too. And then they made this plan and it was kickstarted by these, in, the, all the things we talked about here. And it's, it's an impulsive plan where Spain recognizes that to defeat, you just have to destroy the Navy or you have to get around the Navy and invade, and then you can defeat England because they're they pretty much just have a shell of a soft gooey center, right? But they make this plan, and the plan has no no consideration on the impact of weather, of resupply, of loss of surprise, or any kind of imperfect execution of any phase of this. Everything has to go along 100% perfect in order for this thing to execute. So that's going to come back and bite them, right? The, the quote I heard was that they had a confident hope for a miracle in God. They thought that the Catholic God was behind them to root out the hearsay, uh, or the, the heresy, or, oh my God, the heresy, heresy, heresy. in England. Okay. And God, man, that's a tough word to say. Oh. The plan had to be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. It had to be perfect. And this is, what's interesting is that we talked about intelligence and, you know, England knew what was going on. The English also, the Spanish were short on cash. And so Walsingham proposes economic warfare to delay and prevent the invasion. Mm. He convinces the Italian banking houses and the gold exchanges in Switzerland and in Florence to refuse credit to Spain, which forces oh. them to go to the Pope. And Pope Sixtus V is yeah. extremely tight of money. He's a dragon. He piled the gold and silver in his castle in Rome, but doesn't want to give anything away. <laughs> a veritable smog. Yes. And so he promises them a million gold ducats, which is about 662 yeah. million pounds modern. There's one condition on that, though, Steve, right? Yeah, they have to invade. And he's not going to release the money until a public notary verifies that Spanish feet are on English soil. Yeah, I just yeah. thought, like, give it to a I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring public my notary. notary. Yeah. Well, don't forget your notary. Oh, no, I forgot my stamp. Right. 
Yeah, and so, so Philip's like, I like, so he needs to like, I gotta pay my sailors, I gotta pay my soldiers, I gotta buy all this food, I don't got any money, so I need to get this armada going so I can get onto soil, so I get this these million ducats. Yeah. So he's got like this timeline on him, like I'm gonna run out of cash soon if I don't have the Pope backing me up. And so what's interesting is that the whole everybody knows what's going on with Spain. They have this impulsive decision that you need to get 200 ships, but you can't get 200 ships overnight. So this whole thing is going to get dragged on, right? The plan is originally years for them to assemble the armada. It's originally thought up in 1586, planning for an event in 1587. English get word of this and figure out how can we delay it, right? And so you talk, we did this economic warfare thing, talk about Drake. The thing is, yep. the English were able to contain this Drake raid. I keep the top secret. They shut down their ports so that no one coming in and leaving would be able to inform the Spanish they were loading up these warships to go on this raid. And what I thought was really interesting is we ransacked Cadiz. He destroyed a bunch of supplies, restocked his ships, all raped and pillaged, pillaged, whatever. He destroyed a year's supply, iron hoops and wooden staves for making barrels, which is, why do we care mm. about barrels? It forced the Spanish to new barrels where your salted of, pork goes so they had to make new barrels within a year out of green wood that had not been properly seasoned which then was extremely leaky and caused all the food stuff to spoil on their invasion we'll get to that but oh my critical they, logistical they ran out of food two weeks into the sailing yeah yeah but that that's an amazing thing that no one recognizes yeah. until way after the fact yeah. when you look at it and say oh these barrels were destroyed which then forced them to make new barrels yeah. And they were green wood that caused the food to spoil. Like that that's definitely not something that Drake thought of when he was destroying these barrels. He might have. But I think he might have thought about that too, because he also I, I destroyed he, a bunch of fishing boats. So they had a fish shortage in Cadiz or in Lisbon or wherever. It's just economic warfare. You're yeah. gonna destroy everything that you possibly can. But the ramifications of what he destroyed, those the dominoes fell, yeah. and that's a big deal. Drake pushed so hard that actually one of his ships mutinied and went home. They're like, our food is bad, we're leaving. So he declared all those sailors a death sentence in absentia. I don't know if that was actually ever carried out. But they actually ended up capturing a spice carrack, the San Felipe, which I think was worth about $35 million in modern day. And so that was plunder that they were able to bring back to England as well. So all in all, he destroyed over 10,000 tons of Spanish shipping, which is a lot. That's a lot of ship. That's the weight of the whole English fleet, right? All over again. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to go and raid the bullion fleet, but Elizabeth's indecision. She was like, no, I want to stay home because we might still make peace with Spain after he just like destroyed the years of their barrels. Yeah, like they're really going to go to peace right now, man. So anyways, he wasn't allowed to go raiding. I also thought this was interesting. Back to like non-traditional forms of warfare, or maybe these are traditional because they date back. They had spies, the English had spies in the household of the Armada chief of command. Uh, he was Santa Cruz at the time. And so they had a copy of their most recent order of the battle, dated uh, March 1987, all the plans, the whole bill of the fleet. And they learned they weren't going to be able to complete the mission in 1987. They needed to wait for the next year. And so during that time, they used propaganda and psychological warfare to drum up nationalistic sentiment at home. And, and then they pressured Spanish morale in Spain. Stuff like the Spanish are going to come and they're going to eat your children and all that kind of jazz we hear all the time in war. False rumors in English papers telling stories about things that sound kind of believable, putting Spanish ears in a really terrible light. What I thought this was crazy. They were printing weather almanacs in Amsterdam and Paris, forecasting strong storms in 1888, 
that would spell disaster for the Armada, actually damaged recruitment for the Spanish forces um, to the point where the Spanish were cracking down on astrologers who were predicting false and discouraging predictions. <laughs> they were so scared of all this bad news that was getting propagated that they were like shutting it down yeah. because they couldn't get people to buy in. Probably also Maybe didn't that's like why it they had much. to name it the. That's why they had to name it the Fortunate Armada, right? Yeah. To try and counteract some of that yeah. bad juju. Um. Yeah, we talked about the the defenses. They did the same thing they did in World War Two, where they took the most dangerous landing spots and tried to defend those as best they could. And oh, the beacon system. This was funny. They paid guys to watch these beacons, but their job was to sit there and watch the beacon. They weren't allowed to have dogs. They had a shelter, maybe, that didn't have a bed, didn't have a chair. Some places it was just a hole in the ground, and you hold a job was to sit and stare and watch the beacon, and they'd have impromptu inspections. And if you saw the beacon lit up, you had to have the presence of the local justice to verify it to this engage your beacon. So you might have to run downhill to ring the church bell to get people to come up and verify that the beacons were lit so you can send your beacon. But this allowed communication of a impending invasion to reach London within an hour. Really fast, mm-hmm. speed of light communication with slow junctions. But then you didn't have any accidents where all of a sudden the entire English Navy starts sailing because somebody threw a cigarette into a, a pile of wood. Mm, maybe, not the, maybe not the Navy, but they had to assemble militias a few times because they accidentally yeah. lit the beacon or they thought another beacon was lit, but it was actually people hunting, trying to smoke out a badger, for example. Or making a campfire. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> overall, it's a system that works. So it was good to get it verified, actually. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Oh, the other, I don't know if you guys talked about this at all, but Philip was a micromanager and he was fixated. And, and like you look at Hitler in uh, World War II, and he, this was his personal passion and it was going to go the way he wanted it to go. And he pushed it against the advice of multiple people in his military chain of command. And we can talk about that maybe a little bit later, but these people didn't really buy into it very well. But it was his holy crusade that he was going to push. So the Spanish Armada was initially placed under the command of Admiral Don Alvaro de Bazan, the Marquis of Santa Cruz, an esteemed naval officer who had convincingly defeated Philip II's enemies in the Mediterranean at the Battle of Lepanto. However, Santa Cruz died just months before the Armada's launch. He was replaced by the Duke of Medina Sidonia, Don Alonso Perez de Guzman, who was known as an effective administrator, but... Like Bjorn, you said earlier, he had no naval combat experience. He was aided by Spanish naval officers like Martinez de Recalde and Juan Martinez de Leva, Leva, who provided expertise in sailing and ship handling. So he had some experienced Spanish uh, commanders. He also had experienced land commanders joining the campaign. Uh, The first was Don Alonso de Vargas. He led the initial invasion force planned by the Duke of Parma in the Netherlands. And then Duke Hugo de Moncada commanded one of the Armada's four squadrons and was a respected veteran. Several Spanish commanders raised concerns about the overcrowded ships, disorderly fleets, and complications of linking up with Parma's forces. The English were led by Lord Howard of Effingham, who served as Lord Admiral, commanding the English fleet from his flagship, the Arc Royale. He also lacked real naval military experience and was given this position because of his closeness with Queen Elizabeth. He also had subordinates that were very strong on the seas, though. So he had men like Francis Drake, John Hawkins, and Martin Frobisher, all veteran privateers and blockade runners. 
Each of them had extensive experience navigating the waters around England and raiding Spanish ships and ports. Drake, in particular, was considered England's greatest, greatest sea captain, known for bold attacks like his raid on Cadiz, like we talked about. And their leadership proved decisive in defeating the Spanish fleet. All right. So assembling the enormous armada imposed immense logistical challenges for Philip II in Spain. Though they're rich in colonial treasures, Spain lacks a developed industrial economy to fully outfit and supply such a massive naval expedition. Uh, Philip turned to purchasing provisions and material from abroad to complete the effort. You're talking wheat, beans, salted meat bought from Germany, Poland, Italy. The Armada's ships and weapons came from naval stores across the Spanish Empire and the Mediterranean allies. So they're attempting at their very best to accumulate these supplies accumulate the naval stores. They're opening their warehouse doors to see what they've got. Uh, But transporting and warehousing these provisions for over 130 ships and 30,000 men becomes a Herculean task, made worse by delays in the fleet's launch, food spoiled in warehouses, was lost in raids, critical supplies remained unavailable when the fleet sailed. Imagine you're looking at a time period in which it was cheaper to send a, a thing across the ocean as opposed to 20 miles inland on a wagon that's the big issue here it's so much more expensive to try and bring things from inland and that's what the spanish are attempting to do here by assembling these supplies Mm -hmm. into uh, their ports in order to supply these this invasion fleet so as a result many ships sailed with only partial crews insufficient stores for the long voyage Rations rotted in the tropical heat where the Armada lingered for weeks assembling in Lisbon. Within two weeks at sea, the tainted meat and water caused widespread illness among the crew who had already been weakened by poor conditions in port. Water's going to run dangerously low as the cask leaked away in the rough seas at the channel crossing. By the time the fleet reached Calais, thousands were ill from drinking stale or brackish water. Brackish water. Steve, brackish water is like fresh water mixed with salt water, right? That's salt water. You don't want to drink it. It's like a, it's like a sodium, high sodium water. The lack of fresh food and water left both crews like and invasion troops in poor shape for the looming yeah, battle. It's like Gatorade. It's like Sailorade. There you go. Yeah. It gets your electrolytes. <laughs> <laughs> so worst of all, though, on top of the water, on top of the food, you've got inadequate ammunition. The guns routinely malfunction from poor casting and drilling of the iron cannon barrels. On July 29th, many captains reported having only three to nine rounds left per cannon after just a few skirmishes, far short of the minimum 200 rounds that were advised by naval experts. With the guns falling silent, galleons were rendered helpless specters on the water, unable to answer the barrage from English warships or lacking the land or, or to support the landing. The appalling resupply efforts condemned the once invincible armada, no longer fortunate at all. Despite pleas from his commanders for more time and resources, Philip pressured the invasion forward, unwilling to delay when England seemed vulnerable. But the chronic shortages crippled the armada even before it left port. So a lot of that has to do with Philip being on this crusade to destroy England, at the same time realizing that he only gets his money after Mm -hmm. the notary signs the note. Let's talk about the voyage here. So the Spanish Armada will depart Lisbon on May 28th, 1588, setting sail for England after years of extensive preparation. Progress was painfully slow. (laughs) Guys, they only averaged two knots an hour, which is slower than walking speed. You can walk. Yeah, averaging less than two knots as contrary winds battered the ships. 
So the Armada is going to counter the first of many fierce Atlantic storms as it enters the treacherous Bay of Biscay in late May. The The Bay of Biscay is that, that area of the Atlantic Ocean that's between northern Spain and western France. Uh, so it's like that little triangle of water, that little bay, <laughs> that big bay. Powerful winds are going to whip up 40-foot waves, and they're going to just toss these ships like crazy. Uh, vessels are scattered across hundreds of miles, and some of them are going to be driven as far as Scotland. They're all over the place. Uh, this extreme weather is going to disrupt the fleet cohesion and their formation. Dense fog will set in and just add to the confusion. It's going to cause collisions. Uh, ships struggle to see where they're at. Uh, so many are going to return to port with serious damage from the pounding waves and wind. One thing that's interesting to think about is where these sailors and soldiers spend their time on these ships. They didn't have birthing for them. They didn't have hammocks for them. They were just trying to lodge wherever they could find a place to crash when they were off duty, Global if they were under off duty. Thing. Yeah. And so what they did is uh, there's not a lot of space in these ships and packed full of sailors and all of the, the soldiers to support battle. And so they would yeah. build little... And barrels of rotten meat and brackish water. And so they built little partitions and sheds and things all over the decks on the main deck and below deck, just trying to find some place where they could like sleep. And so they're doing this, praying mm-hmm. for the weather the whole time. It's kind of a miserable voyage. And everyone signed up thinking this would go fast, and it doesn't. And they're all stuck out there in the storms. And we see when we get up to around Coruna, you talked about the food being spoiled, all this kind of stuff. There's a massive storm yeah. that goes through it, just knocks out the fleet, and has to get completely re- over a period of a couple months. Yeah, so they get to La Coruna, Spain on June 23rd, a month after they left Lisbon. So they basically like went north and then east around Spain. Corunas, I think, like in the like the central northern part of Spain. It took them a month just to sail around that little corner of Portugal and Spain at the top of the at the top of the peninsula. So like it's they, they don't get northern Portugal. At all. Oh, okay, yeah. So not even in the center. Oh, no, it's just around the bend. Yeah, it's an embarrassment. Just around the river bend. That's right. Yeah, that's an embarrassment. So Steve, like you had said, right? So they get to La Coruna and they're going to spend nearly a month there making repairs and trying to resupply, like getting sailors into La Coruna so that they can rest and refit themselves. They do take on an outbreak of typhus, which kills hundreds of sailors and Marines confined aboard the ships. Morale continues to plummet as they await for orders to sail. Steve, do you have any other notes on what happened at Coruna? Any of these repairs or anything? One person reported the storm as being... Uh, so violent a sea and wind had never been seen. And the storm lasted for days. You mentioned them getting scattered all over the place. Many ships were missing in damage. The interesting thing is, up to this point, the city of Medina Sidonia had really been super on board with tradition. He tried to turn it down initially. I've never commanded anything at war. I'm not even a sailor. Don't, don't sign me up for this. Yeah, and Philip took it to be like, oh, this is a humble guy. He yeah. should be a commander. <laughs> yeah, and Philip told him, or his counsel wrote him back and said, no, you're probably the best person for the job right now. You're an expert in naval combat. You know what's going on. And he was like, no, 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 no. So when they get to Karuna after a month and everything's destroyed and it's all wrecked, rebuild half the fleet again and resupply and do all this stuff, he pings Philip again and he says, sire, how do you think we can attack so great a country as England with such a force as is now? Maybe we could come to honorable terms with the enemy. 
And Parma, around the same time, writes to Philip and says, hey, I'm worried that Sidonia persuaded himself that I might be able to go and meet him with my boats, my little flat river boats that I built to ferry across the channel. Uh, these things can't be. I should just, if I thought Sidonia were depending on them, he will plainly see the truth that these little flat boats built for rivers for the sea, I cannot diverge from the short direct passage which has been agreed upon. If we came upon by any armed English or Dutch rebel ships, they would destroy us. Philip is really upset by this news up to this point. Some of the complaints and some of the concerns that Sidonia had been sending have been shielded from Philip, but now they've gone. They've mm. launched, and he's like, no, this is a holy crusade. We'll just pray harder. You guys got to go. God will be on your side. The miracle will happen. That's the best part of the plan. And it doesn't even have to do, like, some of these concerns aren't even around the logistics of the supply or the ship's health. It's the fact that they don't even have a plan for getting a port. They don't have a plan yeah. for ferrying the Duke of Parma. It's going to take multiple trips to transport the Duke of Parma. So commanders of the Armada are also writing to each other, and we have these records. And it's like, we don't think this can going either. Like, what the heck? Why are we doing this? all, for some reason, continue to push. There's a lot to be learned there. Yeah, so they're in La Coruna. July 19th, they finally leave after two months from leaving Lisbon. And then eight days later, they, they, they spot English shore, right? They get to the area near Cornwall. In that transit, they lost three ships. They end up losing their flagship, who spends the rest of the campaign in French ports being refitted. And then they lose two of their galleys and a galleas due to weather and damaged brothers we're gonna cut it off here we've had a really great discussion getting us to the english channel so next episode we're gonna get into some of these battles right we're gonna talk about the fire ships of calais we'll talk about the battle of Gravelines. we'll talk about the disbursement of the spanish armada following the battle everyone thank you so much for listening we love having you here steve thanks for joining us today man it was great to have you here so appreciate that. We're glad that you're going to be joining us next week to talk about the battles and how these ships operate. So everyone, please go and subscribe to your podcast platforms. Leave us a review. We appreciate it. The podcast is now on YouTube, so you'll see this thing come out on YouTube soon. If you aren't, it's good to see you, man. Appreciate you. MMG out. <laughs>